Hi, this is Thomas from Quest and Chaos. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast and joining us on this chaotic adventure. If you want to listen to our other exciting podcasts, such as Swords and Sages, Chaos Agent, Spelljammer, and many more, please visit our website at questsandchaos.com slash podcasts for links to your favorite podcast platform of choice. Now, if you enjoyed this content and want to support us, please consider joining our Patreon for exclusive content, cast interaction, and more at patreon.com slash chaos. Now, enjoy the podcast. Oh, we are rolling? Yeah, we should do this before it gets too hot in here. Okay. Calm yourself. Notes. All right, who wants to open this one? I forgot. I will. Okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome to This Week in the Untitled Podcast. You were so <laughs> close to saying the, the way for you. <laughs> Just going straight to it. Straight to it. We, got, we can't do that because there's going to be an ad break before that. Right now? No. Okay. I just, <laughs> you surprised me with ad breaks and I'm like, ah, mid-sentence. You're like, an ad break goes here. I'm like, ah, okay. Uh, those of you who uh, get the early version, who jump on as soon as it is published by using the notification button on YouTube, uh, sometimes you don't see the ads because I forget to put them in. <laughs> uh, there's, you know, it's the publishing process. There's a whole lot going on in there. Yeah, like it's, life. <laughs> yeah, it is upload, and then usually it's upload from the office, and then go back to home and a bunch of stuff because the internet is so much better here. Mm-hmm. So is the air conditioning anyway? As long as it's on. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's speed things up because we shut it off to record. So okay. let's talk about what are we doing? What did we do this week essentially? Slash, what are we doing? So uh, stuff that's happening is we are continuing to play Dungeons and Dragons versus Rick and Morty. On Mondays, uh, it may or may not end this week. It's uh, we have made sure to have it be go as long as you need to. <laughs> Just finish when you finish. Uh-huh. It'll be fine. Well, and the campaign is a huge dungeon crawl, which means that you could go on forever. Yeah, and it, ever. I I believe it's you know it would be like a six hour one shot. That's you, a lot. Yeah. Interesting thing too about. Dungeons and Dragons versus Rick and Morty, mm-hmm. and the way that Aaron is playing it, it is, he is not in the module, really. There's he's not going. They haven't done the dungeon. Mm-hmm. They've converted the dungeon yeah. into a town, mm-hmm. which is, I think, a lot more interesting. Yeah. Well, and also too, he's a fan, mm-hmm. so it makes it highly more interesting to just li- sit there and listen to the voices, um, you mm-hmm. know, because it's it's very much like watching the show. So if you are a fan of the show, Aaron does an excellent job. Yeah, uh, actually, everyone. On there mm-hmm. does a really good job of, yep. of embodying the characters playing uh, other characters. Mm-hmm. It's you know it's the it's the I'm a person playing a person. Yes. Okay. I'm a dude playing another dude. Yeah. Playing a dude. Cool. Um. What else right. happened? What else is going on? We rolled the dice this week and had one person at the table. Oh oh yes, we had somebody in the studio with mm-hmm. us. Uh, it is uh. Not something that we're ready to do full time. Yeah, uh, we we you know we are still concerned and and doing everything as good as we can. Uh, lots <laughs> of cleaning involved. 
but we um, as I turn the camera and there is just cables, cables and stands. So, but it is a good and thing. And um, cables all so some a part of one of the lights fell. So I it's over to, there actually. Uh, anyway, I, uh, so, so anyway, two parts of get, two lights fell. <laughs> can we get back to the point of the fact that Ezra came in and we played Hyper Games. Houston, we have it all. Yep, that we talked about on Kickstarter last week. We actually got to demo it because a lot of the demos are in German and a lot of the instructions are in German or in, you know, in English, but not fully, you know, it's not a full demo, if you will. Right. So we were one of the few people that actually got a copy of it sent to the U.S. and in fact, in the conversation with Ezra, he actually had all the copies sent to him. So we got this one first before he even shipped the rest of the copies to everybody else who's going to review it. So we <laughs> get like, we got top priority. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that we don't really do here a lot are review games mm -hmm. um, because that is a, <laughs> it's a, it's a skill. Whereas playing games and messing up and having fun is oh my god not a skill. Yeah, no, actually, it's <laughs> par for the course. I highly urge everyone that if they want to see Thomas constantly mess up a game, watch Houston. We have a dolphin. I didn't break any rules. No, you didn't. You just played it epically <laughs> wrong. Um, spoiler alert: Was it during the the a, initial playthrough? Yeah. So we tried it once just to figure out the mechanics and sort of ask questions and figure things out. And the, as you've seen, you know, on last week's, obviously the dolphin is the villain. Um, somebody was the dolphin and somebody decided to make the dolphin captain right away and not keep it a secret. He's like, oh, I'm going to be a captain. So it's, welcome, Captain Dolphin. We're like, so yeah. now what? Yeah. Don't. Uh, yeah. If you are the dolphin, don't become a captain if you can avoid it. Yeah. Which you can with strategy. By using your brain. <laughs> strategy. Um, anyway, so uh, so that happened. That is out there right now. If you click this link right up so over here. So not even probably uh, right. It will take you to our playthrough mm -hmm. of Houston, We Have a Dolphin. Mm -hmm. And what was it? Friday? Friday. Monday. Friday. Monday. Monday? So. Saturday. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Could just name the rest of the days of the week. Everything's What fine. happened? Tell me what happened. So this is my life in a nutshell. <laughs> I get emails. I just get random emails. Sometimes I get phone calls. Um really condensed version is Thomas used to go to NAB back when NAB was a thing in Vegas. And I would get emails from people saying, Hey, thanks Amy for purchasing this thing. And it would be like a thousand dollars or $1,500 or 700. I would just get an email. I'd be sitting at my desk typing away. And all of a sudden I see bang, thanks Amy for purchasing this thousand dollar item. I'd be like, what the fuck just happened? I don't know if I like where this conversation is going. What do you mean? This isn't a conversation. This is me just <laughs> having therapy moment. So this is actually instead of so the what, QNC update, this is therapy. You bought a slider or something. Yeah, it, like eight years ago at NAB. But this is par for the course. So this is exactly how everything happens in my life is that I get an email with money that Thomas has spent updating me that he has spent money. And so I used to get extremely concerned when I would see these emails saying, hey, Amy, thanks. Because again, it's my name on the credit card that it would be like, hey, or my name on the account that would say, hey, Amy, thanks for this purchase. I would freak out and be like, oh my God, somebody's got the credit card. Something has happened. After I don't know how many years now, I just know that you're just buying stuff. And that's the way Except it goes. Except for that did happen because our credit card number was stolen and somebody used it to purchase some random But did I call you freaked things. out? 
you texted and said, hey, is this something you bought? And I said, no, it's probably fraud. Exactly. As opposed to the other way around, we're early on. Never mind. What, anyway, what is the point of this? The point is, <laughs> Friday, I got an email saying, oh, hey, Amy, right. thanks for purchasing Gloomhaven, Jaws of the Lion. I was like, yeah, okay, cool. So obviously that's going to show up. And I was uh, pleasantly surprised to find out that it was Thursday because after you told me the drama of it's out of it's stock, out it's of in stock, stock whatever. Can't find it, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Jaws of the Lion, Gloomhaven, mm -hmm. we're going to play it. And I've been told by unknown sources that it's not as miserable as the original. Well, For all of the Gloomhaven fans out, out there, we obviously are not going to ever play games together because we just don't enjoy the same game. So I've heard that not only is there the foldable book that I saw on the email that said, congratulations, you've purchased this. It'll arrive on Thursday. Um, but also I was told that there is sort of a watered down version of the rules and as you go along rules are added so it's not like you have to memorize the 60 page book or spend half of your gameplay looking up rules which i don't know that, that let's wait until we get it to really find out if we need to read all eight pages <laughs> of the rule book. if we really need to read any of the rules i agree um but yeah back to houston we have a dolphin four pages of rules thumbs up <laughs> anyway how's that it. slider working out for you I don't know. How is it? I mean, I enjoyed it. We shot Mage Haven on it. It was a really good value on, you know, anyway. It, just... it still rents out to today. So you, if you are in the local to the Bay Area, if you needed a four foot slider, it's for rent. Yeah. Please offset that freaked out email. Hey, your husband just spent $1,200 in Vegas. Thanks. Hey, I spent $1,200 in Vegas on something useful. I'll just... I'll just leave that out there. Who says wine isn't useful? <laughs> All right. Uh, I think that I think I think we need a palate cleanser. I think we need to take a break, an ad break, if you will, and then and then come back for this weekend Kickstarter. You were supposed to put it in when I said right now. Okay, and we are back after that uh, after that ad break. Uh, if mm -hmm. you use an ad blocker, uh, you do not see an ad break. And we did not earn any pennies for it. And when we say pennies, we actually mean literal, parts of, literal parts of pennies. Parts of pennies. Yeah, not digital pennies. Digital parts of pennies. Okay, so we're in this week in Kickstarter, and this week is going to be different because we're going to talk about things that are coming up, um, not things that are actually as our usual mo five days to being finished, which is <laughs> yes. Um, if this goes out when we think it will go out. You cannot purchase either <laughs> of these two Kickstarters we're going to talk about. No, you could actually purchase one. Oh, you can? Yeah, because one of them will launch in two days from t from the record day, All which right. means that it will be brand new to Kickstarter, which is kind of why I almost like this, because now we can be like, hey, remember we mentioned this thing? Or, hey, guess what? We're actually on time with something. So for okay. once, by going early, we've made it a deadline on time. Are you going to edit this tonight? Nope. Okay, then. So uh, let's mean, jump into, let's actually, let's jump into game number one, which is the one that's coming out sooner. No. What? Okay. Game number one. I don't know what you're saying anymore. The Librarians. It's not sooner. It is. It's not. I, okay. Game number one. <laughs> I should have said, let's start with game number two, the one that's coming out sooner. How about just start with anything? Just the Librarians. No, one of the games will be what, what? It's at TNT? Is it? I uh, think it is. I think it's uh, Turner Network, whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Feels, no, feels Noah right. Wiley. How about uh, everyone's favorite doctor? Watch. That's a 
staring off the into librarian the movies wikipedia blah 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 anyway blah. continue uh, to talk about the show so, i made you watch it i actually enjoyed yes, it uh so it's honestly we're less excited about this being the librarians than we are about this being designed by brett Schofield. Our very own uh, a weighted cane wielding maniac, <laughs> drug, drug running, drug addict. He this is all in Call of Cthulhu. Running. So, uh, so Brett, I don't think he ran drugs. I mean, he did have a pinky ring and a cape, which was amazing. <laughs> so uh, Brett was in our our home game, our home Cthulhu game with mm -hmm. Ezra, Nick, uh, a number of other people, uh, Amy and I, and. We played Horror on the Orient Express. Which I still think is Murder on the Orient Express, but whatever. Yes, uh, all the way up until... Because uh, somebody murdered me. Nick betrayed us, and then the game was just over. It's like, oh, yeah, oh, your whole mission this entire time? Yeah, Nick's character decided just to give the bad guy what he wanted, and... Hey, we're done with this game. Well, it is, it is a thing you can do. <laughs> anyway, uh, he and Nick's, uh, Brett, Brett and Nick got into a lot of fun with uh, tranquilizers to keep dogs away. I think they were both afraid of dogs for some reason. Um, I don't know. Well, I mean, I wouldn't. Anyway, anyway, this isn't anyway. about Cthulhu. This is about <laughs> the fact that um, our Brett, friend Brett mm -hmm, is the designer designed a card game. Mm -hmm. And this is a cooperative card game. Um, so it has aspects that are somewhat similar to the Arkham Horror. Um, things are a little bit different. Things that are like uh, the Warhammer RPG. Is that what it is? I so so in this um, card game, you have a deck of cards, which is an adventurer. And mm -hmm. it's uh, each deck is, I believe, standalone. And you go through that adventure. And you are going cooperative and, and you play one librarian. And you have a deck that represents your skills and abilities and knowledge. And you um, together play through an adventure mm -hmm. with a card deck. It's very vague right now. Uh, they're not saying a lot. They have uh, Brett sent us a little bit more information, but mm -hmm. it's still they. It feels like they're still being very vague about some of the actual mechanics. Yeah. So just to read some of the information that he sent us um, in a chat, um, you're playing through a scenario um, called an adventure, which contains a unique set of cards, kind of like Arkham Horror, um, but no cards are shared between the adventures. Um, these cards dictate what you are trying to achieve as well as what your antagonists are trying to achieve as well. Um, finally, the adventure cards um, put roadblocks in your way. Um, it behooves you to defeat them, but it won't necessarily help you win. I'm suspecting it'll probably slow you down and make things more complicated more than yeah. anything else. Mm -hmm. um, and like Thomas said, you do control a character from the television show or little movie. You know, I think they're called movie miniseries or whatever that, you know, we're on television. Um and that you have an accompanying deck of cards that represents your skills, your knowledge, and your capabilities. And then your characters take actions um, and you resolve those actions by rolling a pool of dice. So that's, I think, the interesting piece yeah. here is that unlike Arkham Horror, you get a pool of dice in order to, like, you know, yeah. determine if you do succeed or fail right. in a and little, you know. A lot of people don't like um, the randomness of dice rolls. Mm -hmm. So in this, there is a mechanic where you're, you can use your cards to offset any really bad rolls. Mm -hmm. So if you, um, you know, so, so you're less reliant on just pure luck and there is, you know, there's luck, but then you have the ability to strategize and say, I think it's worth it trying to you know, do something right now rather mm -hmm. than later. Mm -hmm. Or yeah. Or let the, yeah. let the dice lie where they are. 
Um, so I'm just excited to actually know somebody for quite some time. I mean, how long have we known Brett and played games with him? You know, 10 years probably. Yep. Um, who's actually developed a game and mm -hmm. this game will launch when he's at Q1. Q3, which, you know, could be today. Oh, I'm sorry. Q3. I live in a world yes. where my quarters are weird. So like to me, Q1 starts in August. Never mind. I'm sorry. You're in Q1 2025 already. Yes, I live in the it's future. Weird. Anyway, uh, um, so it'll launch Q3. So it'll launch later the this Kickstarter year. The Kickstarter will launch. Yep, exactly. And mm -hmm. so we'll have Brett on to talk a little bit about the game and he'll give us a preview of the game, which again, super excited. Um you know, that friends of ours make games for a living mm -hmm. and that they're launching them on Kickstarter and that they have big names, big TV names, like, you know, the librarian. So that's kind of yeah. kind of epic and fun. Which was, so it's kind of funny. He posted, you know, hey, this thing that I've been working on for mm -hmm. a number of years is coming out. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. You made a game. And it wasn't until like I, like a couple days later that I actually opened up the link that he posted mm -hmm. to see that I'm like, oh man, this is like, the, it's the librarians. That's a mm -hmm. big property. That is very mm -hmm. cool. Um, and we will talk to Brett uh, and maybe even uh, the publisher of the game and maybe discuss the IP and how that happens. Because mm -hmm. later in the show today, we're going to be talking to Brandon Roche of uh, Bard Games, mm -hmm. who does a lot of um, game mechanics or, you know, he finds a designer that is has a game and then he finds an IP that that fits with the game. Mm -hmm. um, you know, or, you know, and and comes out with games like Fickle and The Lost Worlds of Josh Kirby. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk to him later on in the show. Yep. And so that's also why we wanted to kind of introduce the librarians, because it does that as well, um, where you're looking at an IP that, you know, Brett probably didn't have access to and then marrying it with some game mechanics that, you know, mm -hmm. I'm sure him and his team have developed. So, yeah, should be exciting. The graphics cards look really cool. Mm -hmm. I am looking forward to checking that out. Mm -hmm. Yep, what? And the video has some you know, cutscenes from the actual show itself, mm -hmm. which is cool. Yeah. So video video got, looks pretty cool. Yep. So they definitely have support from the actual property IP. Cool. What else is going on? You you All were right. talking about another RPG. Okay. So Thomas is arguing with me on this one. <laughs> Am I? Okay. The name of it is Zhongxi Blood in the Banquet Hall. Okay. How could you not? Not what? Want to play this. Okay. I mean, Blood in the Banquet Hall, that says it all right there. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Sounds like a typical marriage ceremony, if you ask me. Blood in the banquet hall? Yeah. Highly possible. Um, so essentially, Zhongxi is flying zombies, and you are, this is an RPG, and you are a ch uh, family of Chinese immigrants running a restaurant by day and dealing with the hauntings of Zhongxi by night. Um, or I'm sorry, Jiangxi. My pronunciation in English is terrible, much less any other language would be horrible. Um, and this was done by Banana Chan and another gentleman that I did not write his name down and now forget. Ah. But essentially the RPG is launching in July, what's today? July 14th. So it's launched. Thanks. I didn't, when you said it's July, I was like, it's not July. That's okay. We were talking about it this morning. I was like, you know, March, like tomorrow. It's still going out in March. Yeah, my concept of months is like, when this is all over, it's like, oh yeah, oh no, it's March. We're still, we're going to redo this. We're going to redo it. It's a redo. So really, do I, yeah, okay, never mind. I was thinking about that the other no, day. Well, the downside of that comment is that it might be like, hey, everybody, it's March. We get to redo it. It's March 2021. It is. I guarantee you it is. I'm just saying that if there's a sports bet for when we get out of this, I don't March. have money putting it on March 2021. Wow. Anyway. I it's coming out in three days. So. 
it takes place in Calgary, Canada, and it takes place in the 1920s, right around, um, you know, the Chinese Immigration Act. And so there are some adult themes in here dealing with immigration, racism, um, things of that nature. But then there's also kind of like the cthulhu aspect of it. Um, so I was watching a playthrough and it really just comes down to, you know, the tone of the characters. So you are a family and you have to determine what your family dynamics are. And it is an entirely new game system based on D8s. Um, you know, and so you can, you know, obviously play with any, you know, family relationships that you want to. There is um, the kick-ass grandma. <laughs> okay. She's somewhat superstitious. So pre-generating characters. There, so in the playtest or okay. in the playthroughs that I saw, there are pre-generated characters. Okay. And so I'd be interested to find out in a couple days to check back and just, you know, maybe do an update in next week's just to see, like, just because this is the playthrough you know, just kind of like Rick and Morty. It's like, mm -hmm. okay, so there are pre-generated characters, right. but then the question is, can you alter this to make it fit what your players want to do? Right. So in the play test, it's like a son, um, you know, grandma, and then a couple, and they run the the Chinese restaurant. Um, and then your NPCs kind of come and go. And then they, you know, not only have to deal with the dealings of, you know, running a restaurant during the day, obviously some of it is just, you know, what do you do? I'm the chef, you know, who really cooks? Well, the wife actually cooks, but the husband thinks he's the chef kind of thing, you know, so there are right. the dealings of, um, you know, running the restaurant, but then you also get to, you know, use and rely on that supernatural piece. Mm -hmm. Um, that integrates into fighting zombies, which again, for me is really kind of fun because it feels very Cthulhu-ish and I could see it being easily adapted um, to being either run into a Cthulhu campaign or vice versa. And obviously everything I do is pulp, so. So there's going to be a lots of stabbings of Jiangxi. Possibly. I mean, there are. Punch, there was you already, punch a ghost? You could punch a ghost. You could also cleave one. It's a zombie. It's not a ghost. Oh. But it flies? Well, it jumps. So, okay. I don't know. I, what are know. the stats of these zombies? I, don't, I, I mean, don't I need know. a stat block. I don't and, know. I don't know. Uh, uh, we probably... in probably a two month. Two days, yes. Yeah. <laughs> in a month. In two days, you'll probably find out a lot more when it hits Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. um, there, So there is that playthrough uh, with the uh, with Banana Chan as the, the DM. Yep. The GM. The D... I forget what that what specifically they called the uh, the game master. The it's like something moderator. Yes. Anyway, um, should have taken notes. Should have taken better. Should have taken. But, notes. Oh well. Uh, but anyway, so that is out. Will probably be out as uh, we talk as this Kickstarter goes out, and there will be a link to that playthrough right up here. Mm -hmm. um, it is on YouTube, so you can kind of take a look at it, and you know, watch that because it's know. well. I mean, it's out already, so you might as well you know take a look because it seems like a very cool. A, it seems like a very cool stream. Hop uh, the recording. Hopping vampire or zombie, or zombie. So, so when you say ghost, it's not really corp. It's corporeal, so you can okay. you could punch it technically. Well, here's the problem: if it, a zombie and a vampire are two very different things. Maybe. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Okay. okay. Anyway, Whatever. so uh, so that's cool. Even, Check I that can tell, out. I'll tell you offline about zombies and vampires. Okay. Um, is that going to wrap it up? Is that the end of this week? Well, Kickstarter? we have to. Um, oh, sorry. So Sen Lim is the other developer on this. Sorry, I had to find those find those little scribblings. That Thank I, you. I put it. On, I literally wrote it on a piece of paper and then 
put the grocery list on the other side of it and then threw it out. It was weird. It was weird. <laughs> Why? Because, because you guys, I like, was like, Immigration no. Act of 1920 in Calgary. No, like, notes I was on like, that and then like a list of like yeah, vegetables. It's like, we need, you know, red peppers, green peppers, jumping zombies. I'm like, what? I don't get this. It's completely within motif. It's like you're running a restaurant and killing jumping zombies. So I'm just saying it's anyway. Chapter one, going, yeah. you know, going to the farmer's market. You know, and then, I mean, imagine, imagine real life, right? Where you have to continue to make a living, continue to run a business, mm -hmm. and then you never know if there's a vampire out or a zombie or a jumping zombie. It's exhausting. One one job's enough. <laughs> so if there are zombies, I think we need to just be like, nobody has to work anymore. Zombies. Maybe the zombies should work. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think the Zombie Liberation Front probably would not be into that. Who's going to represent that? Never mind. Okay, again, <laughs> this can be a whole other side topic about um, representation in Congress. Like, can never mind. No, if never you were a zombie, never mind. What? Yeah, I, mean, I mean, do you get half representation because technically you're not alive anymore? So you're not like a living person. Like, we'd have to redefine what a person is. This is this is a rabbit hole. I don't think that you or I should be doing. Okay. Zombies are uh, they they can talk for themselves. Can they? What are they going to say? Nah. Exactly. Nah. Okay. So let's. Um. I forgot you introduced Brandon. Yeah, I did. So guess what? We're going to talk to Brandon next. After this ad break. The new the new way that we kick this off is a lot more informal. So Let's welcome, start Brandon. Talking. Thank you. Yeah, let's just start talking. How's it going, man? Great. Obviously, 2020 has been a bizarre year for everyone in gaming and just about every industry. So um, yeah. despite that, though, doing well and so excited to see you two again. Yeah. Hi. I like the fact that you pressed your shirt as well. <laughs> Clearly, the camera ad, the camera adds fifteen wrinkles. So, no, I was like very dressed up for a you know for a meeting for a home meeting. Yeah, well, yeah I think it's a new world, right? We all gotta get ready. Mm -hmm. The last time we saw each other in person was February. That's right, DunderCon. I barely yeah. remember that. That was still a, a totally normal time period. In America, anyway. We were innocent then, weren't we? As yeah. we all sat around the game table and had a great time playing mm -hmm. uh, Josh Kirby and yeah. doing the promotion. And, you know, but it's a it's an interesting kickoff to, you know, I think how everyone's doing is different than it used to be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as we've turned to virtual tools and trying to figure out how we're going to engage with audiences and, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, and we're really blessed, though, because if you're a... Um, if you're in the Kickstarter lane, luckily you are already kind of focused on your virtual uh, audience. Um, yeah. But certainly what's hurting for a lot of gamers is not being able to go to conventions. Right. And, well, and publishing companies, that's, you know, a lot of people, that is where they make all their money. Um, yeah. You know, we talked to um, uh, TJ from Master Monk and conventions, it's where they made their money. You know, a lot of people conventions are it's a marketing expense that they hope to break even on his was that was how he was you know generating you know i do think the industry is going to shift and if i really step step back and compare it to other retail companies um and really retail the last 20 years you know if you look back like 10 15 years ago brick and mortar retail managers were convinced that you can't sell anything on the internet nobody's ever going to take it serious people are always going to come in and want to touch things and and this was before amazon 
-hmm. Now we look at, you know, fast forward, how much do you really start in a store anymore? When you're making a meaningful purchase, when you're a hobbyist, right? It all begins online. And I think the board game industry is just a little behind, right? So it's specialty industry. It's, you know, it's a smaller margin, smaller content. So it makes sense, you know, that's the, but it's still retail, right? You're still selling stuff, you're making product. And I do believe that the pandemic globally has suddenly pushed everyone to figure out, well, can it be done? virtually even look at your friendly local game stores that are delivering curbside and hosting virtual events and tabletop simulator and tabletopia there's just mm -hmm. there's all this evidence that you know this is the year and we're seeing it i think other publishers are really racing to have a relevant e-commerce experience and get ready to embrace a reality where conventions really may not be the, the linchpin that it used to be because we just don't know, right. Whether they're coming yeah. back and what will they be like and will people come to them. Right. And certainly depending on what state you're in, you know, there's, you know, sales are all over the place and people are out enjoying mm -hmm. themselves, but uh, you know, as a business owner or operator, you also have some responsibility to, you know, ideally sell your product safely. Sorry. How does that work with the virtual tabletop? I mean, is it, uh, are you producing content that then sells through them or are people scanning the cards or like, what is, the, what is, what happens on those? You know, there's, there's lots of routes. So I'll talk about the, we're, we're in the research phase of two of the most popular platforms, which is Tabletopia, mm -hmm. Tabletop Simulator. Yep. And to relate it to IP a little bit, there's a difference between the two. I would say that the customers for one are very used to knockoffs and, they, uh, they, they don't do a very great job of protecting the IP, which is fine if you're, you know, a prototype or homegrown. And right. some will argue, even if they knock off your product, people are learning about your game, they may buy it later. Mm -hmm. Okay. But if you actually have an IP and an obligation to defend the yeah. imagery or the story or the characters, then, you know, you really can't have that. Where the other, I think, um, so in Tabletop Simulator, you are basically partnering with their company. They actually build the for sale version of your game. Um, and there's a long wait right now because just about everybody is right. trying to get that uh, done. And then it's basically like a royalty share. You know, they are providing the platform and doing the legwork to build it. And then it's like a 50-50 split, roughly. Mm -hmm. Where Tabletopia, you are doing the development and you can make a for sale version. Um, uh, and, and, and they can get involved in off services. Uh, so, so they're kind of two different paths of the same solution, which is, you know, a online version to play of right. lots of games that are really migrating over there. And, you know, I think one thing that is a, a, a nice aha that's come out of all this, if you have the assets anyway, after you've made the physical game, you have all the virtual content, because, you know, to your question, you know, cards are roughly the same shape, regardless, you know, poker size card, right? Most yep. of the assets and virtual assets can be handled pretty quickly to make another experience. Um, and it's, a lot less coding than it probably was 10 years ago. You know, it's, it's almost WYSIWYG at this point. So, mm -hmm. so there's just the barrier of entry is a lot lower to make virtual versions of your games. And we're seeing, we're just seeing, and, and what I think is neat about that is suddenly people are discovering gaming because they're stuck at home. And mm -hmm. so there's this, I, I really do think there's going to be this interesting, it, I don't know if it's a tectonic shift, but it's certainly enough of a quake that in the board game space, 
every publisher, distributor, everyone is rethinking their model. And we're certainly kind of riding that same wave. I mean, I think that there's still going to be, there, there obviously is still that in-person experience. Um, yeah. Where um, I, I think we were talking to uh, Rob Debio, uh, and he was, you know, Tabletop Simulator has animations and stuff. And he's like, yeah, sometimes that gets in the way of just playtesting this game to kind of figure out is this, um, is this, why is it slow? Is it the animations? Is it, you know, the fact that you can't just look at a, you know, if you've got like five cards set out, you can't look over and see them. You have to take control, move the board and everything. Yeah, I agree. I've actually done, uh, I'd say in the last two months, I've been involved in four or five prototype tabletop mm -hmm. simulator tabletopia. And, you know, there's some new skills to learn, like how the buttons work and how to shuffle cards. And it's very easy. And it's it's kind of fun to watch people fumble as they're trying to pick up one card and they accidentally reveal the whole deck. And, you know, like... Somebody I know who does that in real life right here. He did that yesterday. We played a... Fair. Yeah. We played an actual, like, prototype that was sent um, to Ezra from Hyber. And he's just like, whoops, I just revealed, like, the big bad guy to everybody. Sorry. And yeah. it was his fingers that did it. It wasn't, like, you know, keyboards or anything. Oh, well, fair. Then then, then maybe the, the virtual to um, <laughs> yeah. to real world isn't as, as far divided as we thought. I've seen Amy throw a deck of cards. Like, oh, I dropped all those cards. Well, Fairness, the tabletop simulator rage quit where you flip the table yeah. is just awesome. So, you know, there really is, there really is some some give and take and and as mm -hmm. opposed to good or bad or right or wrong or what's you know better or worse i think it's just this shift that is happening and it's being almost uh accelerated because we're at home because publishers are are hurting and trying to figure out how to re-engage right mm -hmm. so um and, and that's why i was comparing it to retail and amazon of even 10 years ago nobody mm -hmm. 10 15 years ago if you were a retail store you didn't see it coming you you weren't getting you know, yeah. very few we're getting ready. And now mm -hmm. I think we're kind of thrust right. into this new world where you didn't see it coming if you're a local small publisher. And right. the ones that get there, the ones that have a good e-commerce experience that can deal with the logistics of, you know, virtual and physical, right, mm -hmm. will we'll be ready. And yeah. that's a, it's a tall order in the middle of a, you know, pandemic and yeah. all this uncertainty. You, where shipping becomes issues and, you know, I can't get the fundamentals sometimes sent to my door on time. So. Yeah. You know, how do I expect a small publisher to do so? We're short of toilet paper and pandemic legacy. Yeah, That's this is true. <laughs> yeah. Got plenty pandemic. pandemic. Yeah. Um, so you said, you mentioned that you had looked at, um, you were working on four different um, tabletop simulator things. Like what are you, what's kind of in the cooker right now? Like what are you, what are you looking at? What for are you about? Yeah, for, for, yeah, for Bard Games, what are you guys developing right now? Uh, actually crowdfunded uh, The Lost Worlds of Josh Kirby. Yep. Mm -hmm. Back in March, uh, February, March. It feels Insane, like 10 it, years ago. It literally <laughs> felt like a year ago, I feel like. Because <laughs> now yeah, that, you know. Yeah, now that you talk years. about it, it's like I remember the experience of going through and playtesting some things and actually giving real feedback. And then now all of a sudden we're talking about the fact that it's funded, it's out there, and you're already looking at other development. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. So uh, we crowdfunded in uh, campaign close in March, right before the pandemic became a mm -hmm. reality. So that was just serendipity. And we're in the middle of the production cycle for that. Uh, mm -hmm. It also includes this, the mission log, which is a puzzle and yeah. coloring book, 36 pages of fun. Oh, it's 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 beautiful. And I will make sure to send you a PDF so you can get a preview. Yes. Um, and I will tell you the puzzles get increasingly harder. So 
towards the end. <laughs> I, I shared some with, uh, I shared one with friends at work and it was great listening to them argue over lunch because it's a puzzle, right? So there's a yeah. correct answer. And uh, it's 190, no, it's 120, it's 175, just, you know, like for an hour. I finally had to give them the answer so they'd stop arguing. Um, <laughs> so we're happy with that. And then what's next is uh, we have uh, we have soft announced, and we'll do the media announcement shortly, uh, Tater Freighter. Okay. Okay. Is this related to a tater tot? Because, God, I love a tater it's tot. A shipping, it's, a, it's a shipping magnets from tater tots. Yes. Yeah, so Tater Freighter is a really silly seven minute um card game where mm -hmm. you are trying to collect taters right <laughs> and other bizarre foods oh, like jam taters, and shrimp yeah I'll see if I can throw some cards but you know here's the tater freighter vehicle the tater freighter yeah, vehicle okay. card um mm -hmm. and you know it has some really wonderfully fun graphics hard to see i'm sure on the camera but oh, it looks good mm -hmm. yeah and you know here's the shrimp blimp and i showed you the grain plane <laughs> and everything is a fun little, here's the jam tram and everything has a fun little rhyme scheme in fact we can teach the entire rules with a poem and what the goal of the game is seven minutes of uh, th uh three to seven players mm -hmm. where you are trying to collect the most food by playing your vehicles and kind of uh uh trying to equally distribute the food. Um, and it's based on a lot of like that prisoner's dilemma. I know what you know, you know what I know. We both know the same thing, but what are you gonna play? Yeah. And um, super fun. It's um, it's also one that we think we could fill this year. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it, it actually is a reaction to, you know, we had the shift on not being able to go to conventions, not being able to mm -hmm. sign up wholesale, um, which was our plan this year for some of the current product. We decided that instead of a big Kickstarter, we do a smaller one, you know, smaller mm -hmm. skews, easier to produce. Um, because, you know, among other things, I think people's wallets are a little tighter this year than last yeah. past years. And um, so Tater Freighter we're working on. Mm -hmm. um, we're still in development for Battlefield Earth, which is, uh, yeah, so we've been working with uh, Galaxy Press for some time. And we actually have a preliminary uh, prototype that takes from the graphic novelization that they're working on for the for the sci-fi story and uh that will likely be next year it just um it was planned for this year on the heels of josh kirby we wanted a another space themed yeah. um game but just decided that in, in light of the burden of everything that's going on we, we kind of made a shift there mm -hmm. and those are probably the two and then well i guess the third one is the partnership with dynamic uh with um uh, dynamite comics mm -hmm. sherlock holmes vanishing man Right. That is going to the Kickstarter will actually be run by Dynamite, and we are the publishing house. So mm -hmm. we've worked on the game, we've handed over all the files. We're really close. So I'm hoping we'll see the Kickstarter this year. Their goal was summer, um, and and like everyone, you know, we all set out to have plans this year, right. and then yeah. we've been responding to 2020. So yeah, so exactly. those are yeah. So I'd say those are the three, you know, upcoming Tater Freighter, Sherlock okay. Holmes, Battlefield Earth. So for so for our viewers, kind of explain because I'm from what I'm I'm kind of guessing here because you know you're working with Battlefield Earth and then Sherlock those are IPs that exist. Um, you know, kind of talk about the difference between something a little more homegrown that you guys take from beginning to end versus working with somebody you know what I mean a big company that has a huge IP like Battlefield Earth or something like Josh Kirby or you know what yeah. I mean like or or even finding finding a game and then finding an IP. Yeah. And making 
you know, something that's greater than the sum of its parts. I mean, I think because right. that that seems to be, um, you, you know, from what from what I can tell, what, what you're known for. Yeah, and I'll actually start with Fickle. I think yep. you, you've you've covered another Fickle one. before, mm -hmm. but you know, mm -hmm. just as another example of now a, a completed game with an IP. Um, you know, and this is uh, so Fickle. I'll start here. Um, you know, Bard Games. We set out to not only make fun games, but you know, we want to work on unique IPs. And you know, when I say unique IP, there's lots of great IPs, but they're very expensive and they're heavily used. So think like the Marvel, you know, the mm -hmm. MCU, right? Or Star Wars, you know, I mean, for a lot of reasons, you know, we're not gonna be able to compete with Fantasy Flight. The entry cost for a Marvel Disney product, you know, you're, you're talking 50,000 to $100,000 just to play yeah. um, with min guarantees and volumes. And if you're large enough and, you know, don't get me wrong, you put enough Spider-Mans on, on things, you're probably gonna do all right. But um, in fact, you know, as, as proof, I don't know if you've seen this one, but I love this game because it's just, this is not ours, but you know, I'm always happy to point out an IP as a great example of, you know, how to exploit an IP. And I'll yeah. talk a little bit more about Hail Hydra, but this is a Walmart by, uh, this was, uh, this is by Spin Master, but it's yeah. a marble. It's gorgeous and dark. You can't ignore it on the shelf. It kind of feels evil, right? And, and great art, but. I wanted to show other IPs really kind of as an, to kind of set this idea that, you know, IP is, is uh, a great way to introduce theme and art and more importantly, mm -hmm. activate an audience who ideally already exists. You know, a lot of the value of an IP is it's, is the followership that's already built into it. So what a, you know, back to, my statement, you know, when we talk about a unique IP, you know, Amy Brown is a great example. She has a huge uh, social media following primarily for her, you know, fairy themed um, uh, illustrations, but has never had a board game. So for us, it was an opportunity to take an existing IP, talk to an audience that we think would be really excited, and then design a game with them in mind, right? So we knew it couldn't be a crunchy Euro and, you know, six hour setup. It need to be something that's a little bit, uh, you know, kind of think family casual, you know, filler if you're alpha gamer. But we knew that 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 knowing who the audience was was a big piece of us working with um, uh, the IP owner and with Amy mm -hmm. Brown. So one of the real advantages is it's great when you get to work with the 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 IP team because they have their own marketing, they have their own yeah. audience, and you know that really made our Kickstarter for quite successful mm -hmm. how did you kind of find Amy, like how did you find amy brown you know what i mean so like and then I also mean, yeah. kind of compare that to josh kirby and lost worlds you know because again one is space one is fairies you know was was the yeah, yeah. little josh yeah, kirby one, here just to show off some art you know josh kirby's a, a little different because in this case josh kirby is the name of the artist we also kind of homaged him in the name of the, mm -hmm. the board game um josh kirby passed away in about in the 2000s so we're working with the estate of Josh Kirby, in this case, uh, niece. So, you know, finding an IP is definitely a networking skill. And um, there's a little bit of luck, a little bit of serendipity, and a little bit out of pocket expense to, to really network and go to the right shows. So uh, in, in, in our case, um, the Lost Worlds of Josh Kirby started at Alien Con. And I went and just talked to the, the, the estate, the, mm -hmm. the family. It, about the beautiful art and literally, you know, I think one of the things that's fun about IP, so I think movies, you know, like you get really excited when you see something or you connect to 
a great theme. And Josh Kirby's art was just so immersive, the space opera sci-fi of the 70s, 60s through 80s, right? Yeah. Which is, you know, kind of my formative sci-fi years just spoke to me. And so we hit it off and, you know, and it's taken some years because I also say that IP development is not as fast as creating your own art. Mm-hmm. Because you're working, it's a business partnership, right? You're yeah. working with a, you're working with, with a company or a private ind- private owner, who has some say and may even have restrictions on how you use um, their art, their illustration, yeah. the game, the name, that kind of stuff. When you approach them, um, you know, because I understand IP as far as like for me in movies, because you know we have a film background. So usually what you do is that you kind of option it. Is that kind of the same concept where you go with them to a pitch and just say, here's my formal pitch. I'd like to option it for development for two weeks, two months, two years. Like how is that first process after you talk to them and say, yeah, we're interested. Here's my lawyer. Then what happens? To begin with that optioning and like the, here's my lawyer round. Um, <laughs> you know, once you have, I, you know, once you're clear on what it is you're asking for, like mm-hmm. how many art assets do you need? Are you going to use the name? What is your market? Are you trying to do global? Are you trying to do US? What is your category? Like a big one for us is we want to do board games and accessories and related geek products. Because like um, for Fickle, for example, we're, we did card sleeves, right? Card yeah. sleeves is another skew, right? It's another product. So having some semblance of like play mats or uh, figurals is a great one. Because mm-hmm. when you start, depending on the size of the IP and the experience of the of the, the brand manager, if you're dealing with a you know kind of professional outfit, mm-hmm. they part of your negotiation can be which categories or kinds of products are you going to make, um, yeah. and that's a big one because I think a lot of times people overlook they I'm making a board game, but I didn't think about merchandise. I didn't think about mm-hmm. how much marketing support or content am I asking for? And the reason you do all that work is what you're trying to really do is value and evaluate what can you afford? What are you willing to pay? Because a Mm -hmm. lot of the brands are going to either require a minimum or an upfront, as well as a percentage in the form of a royalty. And, um, you know, and maybe the last piece is a little bit of homework on their marketing pool, right? So Mm -hmm. Josh Kirby was interesting because, you know, it was kind of, I'll say a defunct, um, IP because there wasn't an active followership, but the family was actively promoting it. So we we speculated that as long as they kept doing what they were doing, social media, other merchandise and products, um, the uh, the Josh Josh Kirby's most famous for the covers of uh, Discworld. So their connection with um, Sir Terry Pratchett and the Discworld books, mm-hmm. you know, is a big piece of kind of their marketing cycle. So they do a lot of products around that. You know the the trick of it all is kind of getting getting clear what are your ask what are your what are you asking for of the IP, so that you can prepare for to your point eventually it has to get to a legal document, because yeah. IPs are complex enough you know you have to deal with things with like, you know country, what countries are you selling in what is your what you know what is your rights and responsibilities if you edit the work. And, you know, Disney Marvel, one of the reasons I grabbed this is this is a great example. You know, I'm sure to use the Hydra logo, right, is a controlled Disney had to sign off on this 10 different ways to Sunday, Mm -hmm. right, before before this game was able to uh, move forward. With a smaller, more intimate IP, ideally you're dealing with less layers of management, bureaucracy, you know, artists. Mm -hmm. Um, But at some level, um, in every IP 
deal, you're, you're trying to identify what are you permitted to do, right? How much are you allowed to market it? And what is your duty to defend? I think that's a big one I mentioned earlier. You know, if we take Amy Brown art, put it out on the internet for marketing purposes, and then people just start free downloading it, right? Uh, because we didn't watermark it or we didn't change resolution, then we have a responsibility there. And that's literally, you know, where I think a successful IP negotiation has to know that stuff mm-hmm. because you have to solve for those things. That's what I'll call like the, the you know, that's the kind of the math side of yeah. the discussion. The best IP deals that we've had so far include this emotional connection, mm-hmm. right? Because to get everything through the lawyer and the cost and, you know, they, both sides got to believe in what you're doing and what you're making. Um, and I imagine film is very, you know, very similar, right? You know, there's all these things you have to do, but if people believe in the project, yeah. then they'll take You're risks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they'll take, they'll, they'll really, they'll find ways to make it work. Um, you know, and I'll tell you that IPs, because of all of that work, that preamble means that you, there's a lot of IPs that you won't get unless you just are foolish and spend your money heavily. If you're mm-hmm. loaded, then, you know, I, you know, sometimes people tell me, oh, I got such and such an IP. And I say, you know, that's not hard. It's how much did you pay for it? That's the hard part, mm-hmm. because you know, um, you know, anybody will sell you their IP for a silly amount of money, but can you make money off the products you're going to make, right? Uh, whatever mm-hmm. you're doing. So um, when I last calculated my batting average, we had signed, I want to say six, seven IPs, you know, third party mm-hmm. legally owned, yeah. and 27 pitches or attempts. Okay. So, so, you know, it was about 20%, right? So, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of work in each one of those. I'll tell you, it's yeah. not one or two calls. You have to really do some homework and all that preamble work because generally where it starts to get difficult and might fall apart is those agreements and those financial considerations because, mm-hmm. you know, board games are also a tight margin. And um, when I, when we started my business partner, Eric Kearney and I, when we started board games, we've gotten, we had gotten some advice that says, whatever you do, don't do IPs. It's just, <laughs> it just doesn't work right in board games. And, you know, and if you know me, you know me enough to know that, well, that's just a dare at that point. Yeah. Like, you know, so <laughs> I, I bit that hook, but it does mean, you know, what I got from that is you have to be really smart and kind of unique back to the unique IPs because there are, there is stuff out there that, um, and the good news is board games is very permissive, you know, mm-hmm. with the kinds of story. Heck, but rutabaga, cats, chilies, just about anything, right, is a board game topic now. So when you're looking for those IPs, like in your creative process, because I suppose there is some creativity when you like when you're like, I'm at AlienCon, I saw Josh Kirby. Um, was the game already somewhat developed or were you like, I have a I have a feeling about this? let me work through it? Or did you already have a game in play and you wanted to match the two? Like, you know, tell, tell me kind of that creativity that happens between you merge the game and the IP itself. I would say definitely B. We saw a, a art theme and story behind it mm-hmm. that we could use and leverage. And in some cases we thought, I mean, to be perfectly candid, in some cases I thought I had a prototype of mine and was way off. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, uh, selfishly, I also, you know, uh, am a game designer in my own mind, but there are way, <laughs> way better designers out there. So ultimately, what we have gotten much more successful doing is looking for for these unique IPs and then finding the right design and designer mm-hmm. who can help us take this story and really leverage it. And Josh Kirby is probably a great example 
because when we saw the art of Josh Kirby, and by the time we were done, I think we have about 80 unique pieces of art that we can use mm-hmm. and uh, ballpark. And, and, and when I see these unique pieces of art, they're mural size. This is back before he was painting these things before computers. So we're talking, you know, huge panels that you can get a lot of detail in. So, so, you know, another tip is if you can snip, if you can snip, uh, if you can crop images out of your art, you get more cards. So, Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, looking at that art really for us defined, well, now when I go to proto spiels, unpubs, game pitches, I'm Mm -hmm. looking for something that matches this theme. And in this case, um, Jordan Nichols was the designer that we partnered with for The Lost Worlds of Josh Kirby because he had basically kind of a planet exploration game and had a cool dice action point, you know, mechanic. Mm -hmm. But it really, and and it was card and panel driven, which means that it was art friendly. Um, Fickle is very similar. Fickle, uh, the designer, uh, Glenn Cotter, had when we we saw that pitch at... um, uh, Gen Con some years ago at, you know, one of the the mixers, right? The game mixers. Mm-hmm. And he had basically kind of a wizard spell casting game. And was, I mean, I, I feel good about this one because we watched other publishers pass on it mm-hmm. because I think they weren't really, they were looking at the game as is, as opposed to, well, what, what are the mechanics here that we could bring to a new theme? And yeah. a lot of the su- successful uh, publishers when they're looking at a design are also trying to figure out what is the art that they can repurpose? What is the themes mm-hmm. that they have in their IP library? That kind yep. of stuff. So, um, someday though, I'm gonna make one from scratch and just have my name on it and hasn't happened yet, I might add. So <laughs> not, not a good game. You, there is a game out there with your name on it though, right? Yeah, I've published a couple games too. Um, so the um, Pocket General, mm-hmm. World War II is a yep. two player um war game style board game i kind of cut my teeth with uh uh dubious alliance and layer of the lich king which was an ip um in this case it was for a a band of orcs tusks up to the tribe (laughs) um you know so i yes i have made some games but i think as we mature the company and we get into larger more specialty product you know everybody has a specialty and there are there are very talented designers out there and i feel good being the vessel to help them get their games made and and back to your original question what it does what i find to be exciting is then go to like a licensed expo and other locations where these brands exist and i've played a whole bunch of prototypes yeah i'll tell you right now i have played the prototype that needs to needs to be killer clowns from outer space like this guy made that game you know, and if I can make that deal mm-hmm. happen, that's, mm-hmm. you know, it, it'll, it's going to be a great game and it's going to be fun to, you know, have the bubble gun ray gun and, you know, the cotton yeah. candy ray gun yeah. and other stuff. Does it just come down to like your ability to pitch in order to get all parties involved? Because like, what, ha- like, have you ever run into a developer who's like, no, this is going to be a wizard game and fairies are no. <laughs> uh, sorry, I just want to jump in and just before you give the real answer. Sure. Uh, my answer is the we like this game we want to take the mechanics and publish and you have a published game or do you want to keep it to yourself and i and i'd be like i want to publish game yeah no you'd be surprised though actually 
we, we have had that happen more than once where we played something, we really liked it, but you know, mm -hmm. one of our early decisions is, will we work with the designer? And sometimes the designer has a very passionate view of the theme and the story. Mm -hmm. Some designers are world building and I'm happy to talk about world building as an IP strategy because there's real money in it. You know, mm -hmm. and if you're, if you're working with a designer who they're trying to build a story and characters, and when I say world build, they want the next MCU, they want the next Star Wars, mm -hmm. they want the next, yeah. you know, um, um, uh, you know, the fantasy world, right, that they're going to write content for, you know, th in that case, that's not a good fit for us, there may be other publishers for them. Because, mm -hmm. you know, back to, you know, trying to find a unique IP and marry it to a, a good quality prototype, right, something that gamers will be proud to play. So for us, that's generally a no-go, but I will add that there's an exception. Because when we signed Tater Freighter, I will be <laughs> honest, I we signed this game and I told the designer, you know, and, and it has this fun, funky art style yeah. and, you know, it just stands on its own. But when we signed it, it was with the intent in my mind to go retheme it. Mm -hmm. And then we took it to playtesting. We took it out in public, you know, to shows, took it to a local pub, that kind of stuff. And over and over and over again, it was two thumbs up. People liked the theme, the silliness of Tater Freighter, you know, special snow cone. Everybody loved arguing over it. <laughs> and by the time by the time we had tested the game, I'm testing and see are they good mechanics and yeah. you know, um, and because I'm you know I'm gonna slap killer clowns on it or something silly. By the time we were done, we came to the conclusion, this game just needs to be made as is. They are, this game is done. And so, so they do happen. I'm not gonna, you know, if, mm -hmm. if you're a yeah. publisher and you, if you're a designer and your game, your art, your theme and your story is like ready to roll. There are publishers that will, that will um, benefit from having a completed product, right? And there's still work for them to do. Don't, you know, don't get me wrong. But I would say that that's all I, it, my guess is that's the exception to the rule, right? Because art is expensive. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, the ability to control the theme, if you're the designer and you sign the game over, you're probably not going to be invited to the, mm -hmm. you know, the, all of the creative processes and definitely mm -hmm. into decisions that drive cost, yeah. right? If you so envisioned giant sized cards so that all mm -hmm. your art and they're reducing it to poker size cards because it's a two and a half dollar difference, then, you know, yeah. that, that can hurt. Right. I mean, just emotionally, because so that actually just brings up a good question is that when we, you know, when we talk to other game designers, some of them have a lot of business experience. So they're just like, I know how much cost is to a card. I know how many words I can get on a card when they design. Was that kind of the same for with Tater Freighter? Um, was the designer, experienced inexperienced how flexible were they you know were they like here's my game fix it if it needs to be fixed you know you know luckily um uh, sam um mm -hmm. was very flexible again we signed it we we're very transparent you know that we intended to retheme it not that we didn't like mm -hmm. we liked the style it was very eye-catching but you know it, 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 we had a different purpose in mind so um, in that case, it ended up being that he was very flexible and, mm -hmm. you know, lucky him, the work that he and um, um, Alice, the person that had done all the great graphic work um, mm -hmm. prior to meeting us to just put together a really quality presentation, right? For, for an easy, fun, you know, kind of small footprint game. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But in other cases where we have, we have sat through several product um pitches where the designer had a very specific story theme and in some cases had spent money on the art right and mm -hmm. you know and I understand right they want to sell the game and get some reimbursement for their initial um 
costs. But, you know, the reality of it is, you know, the publisher's costs are very different, right? Let's, let's put aside yeah. the physical cost of the product, yep. developer time, marketing time, um, platform, e-commerce now, logistics, you know, factory promos and cons, you know, conventions are almost break even, you know, unless you really do large volumes. So there's all these other costs that, you know, in fairness, the designer, if the designer is only thinking Kickstarter, then that's one and done. Mm -hmm. Right. And if the publisher is thinking mass market and trying to get a big retail, what they're trying to do is figure out how to not only make the game, but then sustain the product over time. Mm -hmm. So, so, so to answer your question, I do think the perception of what the real costs are, are very different when you move from kind of an indie self publisher on Kickstarter, which I've done right mm -hmm. with, um, uh, layer the Lich King as an example, um, to a publisher who is taking your game and has a vision for retail and distribution, which I've also done as a designer, because Pocket General is actually uh, uh, published by Pacific Rim Publishing. So mm -hmm. that game I did, you know, I'm a designer in that case, right? And they signed my game and, you know, the costs for the, um, because war games do well in Europe and more globally, but mm -hmm. a very niche market, that meant that their vision, um, Jeff at Pacific Rim Publishing, was very different than what I might have done if I was just Kickstarter focused. As a developer, when you go to them and you're talking about this entire publishing, you know, campaign, is it in some respects like likened to if you're if you make music, do you get royalties? Like, kind of what is the difference? Because like a lot of people can understand, it's like it cost me X amount to ship, to make, to do a Kickstarter, so I need to, you know what I mean? You can pretty easily math those costs. Um, but as a designer, when you're getting into the world of marketing, those are, you know, those are insane costs that most people don't understand how much it is to actually, you know, run a campaign on Facebook or, you know, right. you know, do other ads or, you know, go places, you know, cause you're talking about conventions and you have to get it down to the point where it's like, I need a place to stay and I need to put in a hotel and they don't think about those aspects. So when you go back to them and say, I would like to, and I know this is a really long winded question, but like, I'd like to take your game and distribute it, you know, nationally, internationally. Um, so you're going to have to give me X or you can only get X. Like, what is the deal? You know, what is the deal that you basically like typically set forth with, um, you know, with a, with a, or a with a developer? With a designer. Yeah. Designer, sorry. <laughs> so uh, typically we have a designer royalty um, and mm -hmm. royalties, you know, I, and I'll tell you, you know, the, there's, you could do a little bit of research and you'll see all kinds of advice on, you know, what's a fair amount and how much mm -hmm. royalty. Um, I can tell you our, our approach is we have a scaled royalty because, you mm -hmm. know, the first, you know, the first couple thousand units is break even, right? I mean, well, the first thousand units is almost a loss, right? Is barely yeah. break even. After that, you start moving into break even for the product, not the company, right? That's not paying me a wage. That's just getting mm -hmm. the product, you know, like the, the cost of the marketing and the cost of running the campaign. So, um, so what we do is our, our royalty increases as we hit sales, sales points. Mm -hmm. um, and then generally there is a, a modest um, um, uh, uh, initial royalty grant, right? So there is some, um, mm -hmm. you know, money in the beginning. But you know what I, I mean, honestly, if your goal is to become a full-time designer, where you're living off of the royalties of your work, that is a very, very challenging place to be. Board games are, you know, I mean, to be perfectly candid, you would make way more money doing the same thing, designing like candles, paper plates, um, you know, uh, uh, what's, uh, anything that's general merchandise in a retail store. 
because board games are very, very complex. Think about it. Like it's mm -hmm. a box with an engineered set of specs called a rule book with a whole bunch of plastic and wood and components and inserts. And I got to figure out how to make the thing work with a customer base who is sometimes loud, sometimes unforgiving and is highly discretionary. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it kind of, you know, ultimately the publisher, the designer, everybody has to be doing it as much for the love, right. And the community as yeah. opposed to, you know, and then if you if you do well, right, then or if you you know well funded, then you you know you can do great. Um, mm -hmm. And and but the other reason to have that level of emotional commitment is a really good successful product also takes a long time to build, right? You're yeah. going to be working on that if you're the designer that I mean my term for it, and it sounds kind of negative, but the design and dump designers, right? Here's this thing. Here you go. I want my check. I I have no emotional commitment or ongoing support of it. Mm -hmm. We don't we don't work with them, and. Yeah. The reason for that is, you know, the game will get better as art and play test and the Kickstarter, mm -hmm. right? You know, the Kickstarter community wants to hear from the designer. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately that partnership, you know, is almost as, it, I would argue that uh, the partnership is as, if not more important than the money, because mm -hmm. when you really look at the amount of money on the table for even a successful Kickstarter, I think a, a, a board game, I won't go into big minis, monsters and Gloomhaven, yeah. there's, there's outliers. If you look at your, your typical, you know, eighty to two hundred thousand dollar Kickstarter, right, which is considered a successful Kickstarter, yeah. you know, um, you know, forty percent of those proceeds are going to go to shipping. About twenty, thirty percent is going to go to marketing, right? You've got about if you've done your math right, you've tried to keep mm -hmm. the cost of the game under twenty, the physical costs of manufacturing under twenty percent, one fifth. Right. Or um, the one fifth or one sixth, if you're mm -hmm. really talented. Um, and I'd say that's going the other way. Costs have gone up in the last five years. So, you know, now people are trying to keep it from 20 to 25 percent. And we're talking at volume. Right. Once you hit 100,000 units, it's a totally different game. But, you know, those, that's not your typical Kickstarter trying to get a game made to, you know, Kickstarter is also about making a game to prove it to the market because you're trying to go pitch it to big box. Yep. Right. And so so with that math in mind, you know, really, there's less and less left to pay people to go to conventions, to mm -hmm. buy all that cool art. And, you know, so so the royalty can feel really tight. You know, I'd say a typical is low end is two percent. High end is six to eight percent. Anything mm -hmm. north of 10 is generally is because your name makes sales. Right. There are there are designers whose name guarantees sales. You know, yep. you would definitely want to pay more for those because it goes right back to an IP. A name is also an intellectual property. If mm -hmm. you, you know, if you're one of the recognized names and I won't name drop for fear I owe them something. Um, if you're, <laughs> you know, one of the big names in board games, you already have a following and, you know, that's one more reason yeah. to work and pay more for that designer. Yeah. Hopefully that answered your question. It's a little evasive because no, there's no exact number. Yeah. Um, I would say this though, if you're a designer and you're trying to negotiate that, um, you know, one, you can you can both negotiate a royalty. In other words, here's a percentage of sales, and mm -hmm. then also negotiate working on the game, get paid separately. You know, a fixed yeah. rate, or you know, to actually do development work or to write the mm -hmm. rules. And we do that pretty mm -hmm. regularly because okay. you know because it's a fixed cost and we could plan for it, right? And mm -hmm. if you're talented and know how to do those things, then even better. Um, and I think that really as a designer, I think the better approach is get some points for sure, right? If you, if you luck out and hit a home run, you're going to want that percentage of sales. 
but you know, it's much easier to then um, negotiate, you know, art if you're an artist or um, doing prototype and content writing. Mm-hmm. If, you know, it, particularly if, you know, it's a storybook driven kind of game, you know, as an example. So okay. lots of ways to do it. I mean, and it's very much a negotiation skill. That's, I think, why it might feel mysterious. There's not like a, an easy fit answer because it also, you know, there's other variables, right? Size of the game, distribution, you know, what market are you distributing it? Mm-hmm. Um, other products, right? It could just kind of get out of control really quick. No, oh, yeah. it totally makes sense. It, you know, and again, too, because my experience is in film and television, that's very similar to, you know, film and TV as well. You know, you talk about points on the back end is essentially it's like I get mm-hmm. a day rate for showing up and doing X and Y and Z, but then I get points on the back end to compensate for, you know, maybe taking a cut and yeah. pay or, you know what I mean? Just- is it is it based on it's but the, but your percentage ideal is based on units and not on revenue? Um, I actually, we do ours on revenue, um, but we do revenue by category because the revenue and margin can be different. So card season playmats might pay different. Right. And, you know, and one of the reasons to do that is, you know, at some point the publisher has to make money or there will be no more new games. Right. Right. So, you know, we might be more comfortable giving points on the board game, but the playmat is, you know, such great margin that we might, you know, uh, be tighter on, on that royalty piece. Um, mm-hmm. And there's less work. I mean, what real? De- there's not a lot of development work, right? That goes into an accessory like a playmat, right? right. Mm-hmm. The graphic. So um, hopefully, I mean, so it kind of de- that's how we approach it anyway. I think about Hollywood accounting and the fact that you know, big, movies, you know, blockbuster yeah. movies are still you know millions of dollars in debt, and the you know writer has not seen anything. Right. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's it, in fairness, I think that board games are similar. It, 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 you know, the scale is different. We're not talking millions. We're talking tens of thousands. But, mm-hmm. you know, right out of the gate, you know, building a board game is very cash. It's a very capital intensive activity, right? There's a mm-hmm. lot of build up costs to get to the Kickstarter. And there's there's shortcuts and smart ways, you know, and sign, one of the reasons we are really interested in unique IPs is we kind of curtail the art development cost because we leverage existing existing art, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and to your point, we pay it later in the form of points. But um, all, despite cost mitigations, you still have development. You still have to, you know, everything from building the prototype to, you know, play testing. Um, and, and it also becomes a quality decision too. I will say that there are plenty of games that get low play testing, low development, modest art, and they get made. But those, that almost becomes volume because you're trying to run more Kickstarters or maintain your, your pipeline with your publish, with your uh, distribu- distribution deals. Um, mm-hmm. where we, we've made a decision to be a little bit more specialty, higher quality, a little bit longer lead time um, because we just chose, we, we do feel like if we can be a brand that you trust because the game is good, the quality is there, we, we, can, we can wait a little bit longer for the next thing because we should be able to get you back. So I have a question. It kind of comes back to the marrying of everybody. You talked about, um, you know, you went to Alien Con or, you know what I mean? You just kind of reach out to these brands, but like for a developer, um, a board game developer, or sorry, designer, why do I say developer? Um, For a board game designer, um, where do they meet people like you? Where do they meet, you know what I mean? So if somebody's like, I have this great idea, I would like to, you know, I'm in the process of making my board game. I have, and I have everything. I've got a prototype or whatever. Where do they go to meet other people? You know what I mean? How does that process work for them? Yeah, there's actually a couple venues. Um, 
and I'll uh, and with IPs, I'll set this aside for a minute because there are also shows, right? Conventions and shows are a great way, uh, particularly if you want to get into you know film IPs mm-hmm. or uh, book and magazine. Yeah. So the International License Expo, um, Chicago and New York Toy Fair. Um, so, you know, but we'll set those aside because they're kind of very specific to um, much larger deals. Designers, yeah. but if you, if that's in your neighborhood on the hand, you should go, right? Because <laughs> this is, you know, it's a self-promotion and a negotiation skill to really take your product or your concept mm-hmm. to somebody that's interested. Because board games are so complex, on the other hand, really, I would say that like, in no particular order, um, Protospiels and unpubs are important because you'll network and meet other designers who are published or working on product. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, you know, sometimes people get selfish with their knowledge. Then as the market is pretty, there was like two, I think it was two or 3000 Kickstarters going on when we funded Josh Kirby, 2000, <laughs> 3000, right? Like you have to network. You have to let everyone know, stop being silly. There's, there's plenty of money and people out there. Um, they're not going to steal your work. They're not going to steal your idea. If anything, that's how you're going to wend through, you know, mm-hmm. the silliness that is, you know, getting something creative made. So pro spiels and unpubs are great. And some of them are better than others. I will say, like, I'm really bummed about our uh, game castle in Mountain View. It used to be an excellent unpub. Publishers, uh, board game publishers would fly in for this one because there was a lot mm-hmm. of top drawer designers. Um, I understand that they've closed that store. They're moving to a new location, so we're waiting for an update. And it's 2020, man. You just can't plan on anything. Yeah. So. <laughs> so, so at conventions, game conventions, many mm. of them now have the speed dating. And um, actually, had a uh, yeah, this week I was on a conference call with um, uh, Yanni Usla, who's the CEO of Dice. Um, if you're familiar with Dice.com, which uh, it teaches you how to play board games via an app. Mm-hmm. And yes. he was leading a great discussion on like, you know, how you teach a game. And, you know, specifically when you do the speed dating thing, what you, it, it's an excellent way to meet publishers. Publishers are going to speed dating because they are looking to sign something, right? They may not tell you what, they may not even exactly know why, you know, they need it or where it is in their calendar. But the only reason to go as well as a little bit of practice, but the real reason is you're looking because, you, the thing that you're building is underway and you have to have the next, you know, you got to have the next game in the pipeline. Mm-hmm. The trick with those is you have to be excellent at the five minute pitch. And I have sat through the, and, and that's a topic for another day, but you know, it's easy to flub that one. Um, mm-hmm. Particularly if you're trying to pitch it as an IP, I've, I've sat through several where it's great. They've done all this art. They've really pushed this theme and they didn't hear me when I say, yeah, but you know, I've got this, I've got this comic book deal in the background that I'm trying to put on a board game. So I already can't work with you because you're, you're basically telling me now. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, speed dating, the direct contact is uh, tabletop simulator and tabletopia. I, I ideally, by the way, solve some of that because now you can invite people to go play your prototype and it's fairly yeah. easy to do um, mm-hmm. to set up a virtual table of your prototype. Um, and then I'd say the direct reach is, uh, you know, uh, internet, social media, email, mm-hmm. right? They're publishers vary, you know, depending on how big you're talking, you know, Wizards of the Coast, Hasbro, you're talking armies of brand managers and lawyers, mm-hmm. right? So that's a yeah. little harder. But, you know, an independent small board game publisher, Facebook I am, contact them on the, their Gamma site. Um, if you're not a Gamma member, if you join Gamma, they have like a backdoor portal where you can direct message 
um, other companies. So um, be a little I bit forward. <laughs> yeah, for, for real. And it's very reasonable. I think that the non-publisher membership is like 70 bucks annually. Um, yeah. And, you know, and if you do that route, have your sell sheet, have like, or better still, if you even have a playthrough video that they can watch, right? So mm -hmm. then they could just yeah. go, they can go straight to, ooh, I'm interested. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'll set up a time of the day. Um, because if they are, they'll spend more time. Okay. So besides just the playthrough, which is, you know, obviously you have to have the five minute page, you know, which is the who, what, when, where, why, you know, why do I care is essentially mm -hmm. what you're trying to convey in that couple of minutes. Um, the basic game mechanics, because obviously, you know, every publisher is like, let me understand what this game is and see if there are any holes in it immediately. But then what else do you look for? Like on the one sheet, like what other things are you probing for when you sit down and work, like look at a design, look at a game? For fear that I share too much of our secret sauce, um, we have a very specific methodology when it comes to, yeah, looking at designers. I've talked to others, I've shared some of this with others, but you know, um, without all the details, for example, um, you know, like the, if you have a great game, well, I'm going to take a step back. There are so many great games mm -hmm. right now that your great game isn't necessarily that exceptional, right? So it's more than just a great game, right? Does it fit the customer base of the company? Do you have some unique angle, right? Does it fit a niche that they mm -hmm. have or are missing in their product line? Right. And so, so keep that in mind when I say that, yeah, mechanics and all that stuff that actually comes later. Because I would say when we look at a pitch and we go through a sell sheet and when we talk with designers, here's kind of our methodology. That's interesting. Because because you're almost, yeah. honestly, you're asking, so I, I've also done sales. You're honestly asking the designer to be like, this is where my game is going to play the best. You know, when I used to sell, I would be like, this is who you need to take my product to and go sell it to them. So I was exactly training the sellers to sell kind of thing. Like this is what my product is and you need to know where to put this in your arsenal. And if we didn't have that, if you don't need me today, you're gonna need me one day, so here's my card. Like that was kind of my pitch. That is literally it too, because if if you're pitching me a, a crunchy Euro that's mm -hmm. seven hours and gonna be $300 a make full of miniatures, then you didn't yeah. do any homework on barred games. That is just mm -hmm. not, that's not our target audience, right? So for us, what it boils down to is what I work with the designer, because that we've already kind of covered why. Mm -hmm. Will I play it 100 times? Think Ooh. about that one for a second. Yeah, wow. I, I was like, I don't have 100 times in my yeah. life to play something. So as a publisher, we're going to have to play it, fix it, write the rules, promote mm -hmm. it, you know, uh, take it to cons, sell it. We're going to play it 100 times. And we got to enjoy the hundredth time as much as the first time. That speaks to passion because at a hundred times, you're like, here's this game and I'm over it versus like, right. here's why I believe in this game. Think about how many games you own that you played three to five times, right? Yeah. And I would tell you three to five plays is actually very good. I think, you know, and mm -hmm. there are games that I love that I've played three to five times and I consider them like must keeps. But, you know, realistically, that's different than what a publisher has to do. They, you know, if they're really promoting it, right. then, you know, mm -hmm. there has to, can the game be played that many times and still be fun? So that's part of our test. And I'd say that's very different than what, what it means is that's where the Euro doesn't fit well, right? Mm -hmm. Because the time right. it takes and all that good stuff, yeah. I, I just won't do it, right? There are people who will. Um, will our customers love it? And this is another one that I think goes right into what you're saying as far as like qualifying the sale. Our customer is not, will Brandon Rush, Rush love it? 
Brandon plays yeah. all kinds. I grew up playing role playing games. I play Euros. Sometimes I even win them. You know, like, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm just a consumer of games, but that's different than what Bar Games is really about. Bar Games is three to five players, 12 minutes per player, casual game night. Boom. If it doesn't satisfy that customer, we won't sign it. Mm-hmm. And so what that does is allows us to look at other games. It's actually why, for example, we didn't publish my two-player war game style board game that's mm-hmm. about 60 minutes. It literally failed every test of my company's um, uh, decision on what to, what, what's a good game, right? Because every customer and every game player has a unique um, view of what they like, you know, someone immersion and some tolerate randomness, others it has to be strategic and, you know, complete control. And there's no wrongness there. It's just know your customer. Mm-hmm. And so for us, when we're back to kind of how we use that in pitches, yeah. is what we're looking for is, and particularly if you're listening to us describe the customer and say, hey, can this be a three to five player game? You know, can you knock this down to a 15 minute play? What does it look like if you got rid of drafting and you went straight to shuffle, right? Mm-hmm. Silly example, but if you're a designer, you know what I, you understood what I said, yep. right? Because drafting adds about 10 minutes, you know, each round, you add five rounds to a game, you know, you just added 15 minutes, right? 10 minutes of you know, particularly in the learning phase when people are trying to decide whether they love your game or not. So now I'll take a stat, I'll, I'll, I'll put my designer head on and kind of give the same answer. So you have to be able to help the publisher understand what makes this game unique because all the games are great, but my, my game is unique because of X, right? And that's what your pitch should be. In five minutes, don't try to explain the whole damn game. And mm-hmm. certainly don't like make them simulate drafting right? Just give them the cool cards and say, hey, you drafted successfully, this happened, but look, you just made this cool cascade, right? And all these things move and the, you know, mm-hmm. the, inter- the interlocking puzzle that is my game unfolds, right? That five-minute pitch should be, why is my game special? Who is my target player? And what can this game, what can this game be, right? Mm-hmm. So that's where you start getting into IP and themes. And how involved do I intend to be? Right. Because I think that also like back to your legal question, like there's that round of like getting all the the, the it's not just legal. It's also project management. Right. It's laying out all the work. And if your intent is to to kind of leave it and let the designer have it, then that might be different than the person who desperately wants to learn. And like, you know, we actually like the person that wants to be hands on and learn the business and come mm-hmm. behind, be a part of the okay. team. They're in our Slack channel. They see us mess with their baby all day and mm-hmm. every once in a while. And we love it because they'll chime in and say, oh, wait, that doesn't work because I've tried that. Right. Like, oh, man, you know, and that's that's mm-hmm. the reason to have them there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd say those like if I'm a designer putting together the per- and, and maybe the last one is the components. But the components are negotiable, right? You know, you yeah. you know, as I've already talked about, you know, you, what you envision versus what the designer may choose to do. Sometimes mm-hmm. don't agree. This has been a, a great talk. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, to me, it's fascinating because there are so many similarities, you know, just in business that, um, you know, that if you don't make games, if you don't make movies, if you don't, you know what I mean? If you haven't created and taken something to market, um, I think it's a real sort of just fundamental understanding, you know, so thank you for that. Cause, uh, yeah, I think people kind of don't get, you know, what, what the sauce is that, you know, like all the ingredients that go into that sauce back there. And it's pretty abstract. It's not like the physical part of making the game, right. You know, when you talk about, art and you know legal deals and Uh um royalties right you kind of get into a lot of agreement and that's where 
a um, little bit, little bit of homework pays off. Certainly, I would invite anybody to check out the License Expo, right? The, they, they're, they're kind of the gold standard for where licenses begin. And mm-hmm. then my last challenge to designers is, you know, decide early whether you're making a game or world building, right? Because if you're making a game, then it's okay to let, you know, let your publisher find some cool theme. Mm-hmm. Right, because mm-hmm. if your game is the next Harry Potter, whatever, then you know you're set, man. Harry Potter's going to sell, and you'll probably be invited to make more games. Yeah, right. And maybe that wasn't what you intended, but it's you know it's fine. You'll you'll still have fun. You'll get to go to Comic Con. It'll be great. So, <laughs> but if you're world building, if you have a vision of character and story and theme, then just be aware you're probably an independent. You're probably you know, uh, on your own a little bit. And that's mm-hmm. fine. Um, Cause there's some really successful, you know, like uh, uh, what's the mice and mystics is head to a movie. Right. Am I wrong? Yeah. Well. And, you know, so you just never know like which ones will really grow into, you know, a, a full, a full blown world that you, right. you, you've created. Um, just have a sense early on of where you're at so that when you're having that discussion with people, it's uh, with the, with the right people, the publisher attorneys, if they get involved, it, you, mm-hmm. you know where your boundaries are. Yeah, that's perfect. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you, what is the best way to do that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, our website is uh, bardgames.fun. That's bard as in games. So bardgames.fun. <laughs> and, I, you know, sometimes every once in a while people think it's bar games, which, you know, I yeah. wish I'd have grabbed that. I was about to say, yeah, it's possible. I mean, we'll try to grab that URL first. Don't get me wrong. Bard games. Yes, <laughs> bard games, though. But, you know, it's the. Uh, um, so, bardgames.fun is one way to reach us. We have a contact. You can also do info at bardgames.fun, mm-hmm. and that comes straight to us. Um, that's uh, And then Facebook, we have a active, we're pretty good about Facebook or Facebook I am. So, that's a great way to reach out to. Cool. Perfect. All right. You're going to wrap cool. it up? Or how about we just say, thanks, Brandon. Thank you. I've had, it's always a pleasure to see you both. And even if it's just virtual, we'll figure out how to play something. We're going to play bar games, not bar (laughs) games, bar (laughs) games. I can can still get involved in that too. I like it. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. And we'll, uh, we'll talk to you later. Mm -hmm. Well, that was uh, an interview. Uh, Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually. Can we start this again? Because you're like, that was an interview. I was like, yeah, it was. Go ahead. Well, that was an interview. (laughs) Sorry. I So that is going to wrap it up for this episode of the Untitled Podcast. Oh, man. Um, I think we should have Brandon back on because we did have, after that conversation, I like how you're going to wrap this up. And then we just, I was like, nope, no, we're not. Hold on. <laughs> I got things to say to people. Um, it's like the Lord of the Rings endings. Okay. Anyway. Never mind. They had air conditioning in Lord of the Rings. Okay. All right. You're right. We should just have Brandon on again in the future because we did talk for at least another hour after that conversation about um, production. And it was actually really fascinating because, again, he'd spent some time visiting China and visiting uh, manufacturers in China and then just talking about 
cost effectiveness, right. which, which manufacturing come, like which manufacturers actually like the factory itself, what they do, how they do it, you know, in order to yeah. develop cards and big prints and things like that. So it was actually really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and we actually started talking about specific printers, mm-hmm. um, and, mm-hmm. uh, who he uses, who he would recommend. Um, and then I was like, ah, we did some stuff with them and it was a little bit more pricey than mm-hmm. I wanted it to be. Um, and then I actually went home and ran the numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one that he uh, recommended wasn't that much more expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, he also said that when you have a, a rep and are doing bulk orders, you actually get more discounts than what is on the website. Which so. makes sense. I mean, that's kind of standard, I think, yeah. in general. I think that's not big news to everybody. But if you guys are interested in actually hearing about manufacturing in China um, and some of the nitty-gritty details about colors and you know prints and things like that, just let us know in the comments, and we will get Brandon back on and maybe a few mm-hmm. other people who've gone through that printing process and uh, we should uh, dive into it. We should also reach out to somebody at Panda Game Manufacturing to do a talk, to do an interview. Okay. We happen to know somebody. Anyway. Um, so that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the Untitled Podcast. For real this time. Yep. Which is show. It's a show. It's not a podcast. Is it a podcast? I don't know. Who, well, who listens? Nobody? <laughs> I almost thought you said who, who let the dogs out. Um so okay so here we have to go let the dog out excuse us legitimately in the comments below uh let us know your thoughts about the title of this show so untitled i like it i think it'll stay but is it a podcast is it a show um how what do you think what do you think it should be it's a video podcast oh boy it's a vodcast it's not that that's a dumb word it is a dumb word um, we also are in our Discord, which you could uh, hit us up there as mm-hmm. well. There's a channel specifically for the Untitled mm-hmm. podcast. Where pretty much everybody just quotes the dumb things that come out of my mouth. <laughs> oh, wait, that's most of Discord. 